Chapter Fifteen of Tempest and Sunshine. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Robin. Chapter Fifteen. Mr. Middleton's brother. Julia's first exclamation on waking the next morning was, "I am glad I am not expected to go home with Uncle today and see Father make a precious fool of himself, as he surely will." How can you say so, Julia? Answered Fanny, "I wish I was going, for I think I could smooth Father down a little if he got to using too strong language." Nonsense, Fan," said Julia. "Why don't you confess that you wish to go because that handsome Cameron is going? Didn't I see how much he looked at you and how you blushed too? But no matter, I would get him if I were you." Julia was getting very generous. Now that she thought herself sure of Doctor Lacey, further remark from her, however, was prevented by the ringing of the breakfast bell. What shall I tell your parents? Said Mister Middleton to his nieces as he stood in the hall waiting for the driver to open the carriage door and let down the steps. Julia made no reply, but Fanny said, "Give them my love and tell them I am getting better every day and shall want to come home soon." And then she added in a lower tone. You will not laugh at father much, will you? Or make fun of him either if he acts oddly? God bless you, sweet girl," said Mister Middleton, stooping to kiss the innocent face which looked up into his with so much earnestness. For your sake, if for no other, your father shall not be laughed at. As the carriage drove off, Julia turned to Fanny and said, "Won't they have fun though with the old man? I can fancy it all." Father's beard will probably be long enough to do up in papers, and it will be a miracle if he does not have on those horrid old baggin pants of his. Fanny was only too fearful it would all be as Julia predicted, but she made no answer and soon returned to her room. We will now follow the carriage, which, with its load of gentlemen, was proceeding rapidly toward the house of our friend Uncle Joshua. Mister William Middleton, or Mister Stafford, as we will call him for a time. Seemed to grow excited as he approached nearer to a brother whose face he had not looked upon for more than twenty years. I say, boys," said he, speaking to his companions, "you must help me." I say, boys," said he, speaking to his companions, "you must help me." And when I begin to ask Joshua concerning his parents and brothers, you too must talk, or he will suspect I have some design in questioning him. The gentlemen all promised to do their best, except Frank. Who could promise nothing because he knew nothing concerning the man they were going to visit? His curiosity, however, was aroused, and forgetting the presence of Mister William Middleton, asked, "Do they keep the old fellow caged? And must we pay anything for seeing him?" These questions were greeted by a burst of laughter, and Raymond said, "No, admittance is free, but you'll be more amused to see him and hear him talk than you would in visiting Barnum's museum." By this time, the carriage had entered the woods. And they came inside of the house. Mister Stafford leaned from the window and said, "Is it possible that my brother, with all his wealth, lives in such a heathen place as this?" When you see him," said Raymond, "you'll think the nest just suited the bird." They were now in the yard, which was so filled with farming utensils that the driver found it difficult to effect a passage up to the door. The gentlemen were about concluding to alight where they were, when Mister Middleton was heard calling out. Hold thar, driver! Don't run again that ar ox cart. Turn a little to the right, can't you? Now be careful and not run afoul of the plaguey lie leech. 
I believe the niggers would move the hut, Josh and all, into the yard, if they could only make a raise. Mr. Stafford and Frank looked eagerly out at the speaker, who fully realized Frank's idea of him. His beard was as long and black as a rapid growth of three weeks could make it. As Julia had feared, he was dressed in his favorite bagging pants, which hung loosely, even around his huge proportions, and looked as if fitted to some of his outbuildings. He was very warm, and he wore neither coat nor vest, while his feet, whose dimensions we have never mentioned before, were minus either shoes or stockings. He appeared in the doorway buttoning one of his suspenders. The truth was that he had spied the carriage in the distance, and as his linen was none the cleanest he had hastened to change, and was now putting the finishing touch to his toilet. When he caught the sight of the occupants of the carriage he thought to himself, "'There's a heap on em. Nancy'll have to rout the whole gang of niggers, field hands and all, to huntin' hen's nests after eggs enough for dinner.' By this time the gentlemen had alighted, and Mr. Middleton went forward to receive them. "'How'd you do, how'd you do?' said he. "'I'm mighty glad you've come. I wish you'd brought the whole city.' "'We came pretty near it, I think,' said Mr. Miller, at the same time presenting Mr. Stafford and Mr. Cameron. Mr. Middleton continued talking, as if replying to Mr. Miller's first remark. "'No consequence, no consequence. Mr. Stafford, Mr. Cameron, how are you? The more the merrier. I suppose they've told you all about Josh, so I needn't make believe any. But come in.' The house looks better inside than it does out. Ho, oh, loose, continued he. Where the old boy is your mistress? Tell her thou's a heap of folks out here, and mind tell Aunt Judy to get us up a whalin' dinner. Here he stopped to take a breath for a moment, and then proceeded. You must excuse my rig, gentlemen. Or rather, you must excuse what ain't rigged. Maybe if I'd known all you city buggers was comin', I'd a kivered my bare feet. You go barefoot for comfort, said Mr. Middleton. "'Why, yes, mainly for that, I suppose,' answered Mr. Middleton, "'for I've got such fetching big corns on my feet "'that I ain't going to be cramped with any old toggery. "'My feet happen to be clean, "'for I washed them in the water and trough this morning. "'How do you leave my gals?' "'They are well,' answered Mr. Miller, "'or rather, Julia is, "'and Fanny is improving every day. "'I've often wondered,' said Mr. Middleton, "'what twas ailed sunshine when she was sick. "'She didn't seem to have no disease in particular.' "'and I reckon nothing's on her mind for all straight "'between her and Dr. Lacey, as far as I know.' "'Dr. Lacey?' repeated Frank, without knowing what he said. "'Yes, Dr. Lacey. Know him?' asked Mr. Middleton. "'No, sir,' answered Frank, and Ashton rejoined. "'I imagine he wishes Fanny had never known him.' Mr. Middleton turned, and for a moment regarded Frank intently. Frank stood the inspection manfully, and Mr. Middleton said— "'You are from New York, hey? I like New Yorkers, and if Sunshine wasn't promised to Dr. Lacey, and never had seen him, and I liked you, I'd as soon you'd have her as anybody.' Mr. Stafford now said that he was acquainted with Dr. Lacey, and proceeded to speak of the pleasant time he had spent with him. This occupied the time until dinner was ready. "'Come, hold up,' said Mr. Middleton, "'hold up. We didn't expect so many for dinner. But the old table's stretching, and you must sit close—' "'But don't none of you step on my corns, for thunder's sake!' Frank thought if his host kept on talking, he should not be able to eat for laughing. But the old man was but just getting into the merits of the case. When his guests were seated, he said to Mr. Stafford, "'Your white neckcloth looks like you might belong to the clergy. If you do, you can say a short prayer over the eggs and bacon. But, Lord's sake, be spry, for I'm blarsted hungry!' But for the remembrance of his promise to Fanny, 
Mr. Stafford would have screamed. It is needless to say that he declined his host's invitation, and the company began their dinner. Suddenly, Mr. Stafford asked if Mr. Middleton had any brothers. Yes. No. Oh, that is, I had one once, answered Mr. Middleton, but he's deader than a door now for this, I reckon. And what makes you think he's dead? asked Stafford. Why, you see, returned Mr. Middleton, when our old pap died, something in the will stuck crossways in Bill's swallow, and he left college and put to sea, and I ain't heard from him in fifteen years. Did he look like you? asked Raymond. He was four years younger than I, answered Mr. Middleton. But no more like me than Sunshine's pet kitten is like our old watchdog, Tige. He was soft-like in his ways, and took to book-learning mightily, and I'm—but everybody knows what old Josh is. Hold on there, save the pieces, said he to Frank, who, unable longer to restrain his mirth, had deluged his plate with coffee. Pray excuse me, said Frank, mortified beyond measure at his mishap. His discomfiture was, however, somewhat relieved by his companions, all of whom burst into a fit of laughter, in which Mr. Stafford heartily joined, forgetful of his promise to Fanny. By this time dinner was over, and the company repaired to the porch, where Ashton and Raymond betook themselves to their cigars, while Mr. Middleton puffed away at his old cob pipe. Mr. Stafford at length resumed the dinner-table conversation by saying, "'If I were you, Mr. Middleton, I would not give up on my brother yet. Hope on, hope ever is my motto.' "'Hope on,' repeated Mr. Middleton. I have hoped on till I'm tired on it, and by spells I have dreams in which it seems like my brother was alive and had come back, and then my old girl shell of a heart gives a thunder and thump, and fetches me wide awake. I hate dreams mightily, for it takes me an all-fired while to get to sleep all over, and when I do I hate to be waked by a dream. I hope you'll live to see your brother, though, said Frank. No, I shan't, answered Mr. Middleton, again filling his cob pipe. Everything that I loved has always died. Have you lost many friends? asked Mr. Stafford. Considerable many, said Mr. Middleton, considering how few I ever had. First, there was mother died when Bill and I was little boys, and I was so feared Bill would bust his jacket open that I whispered to him not to take on so, for I'd be his mother now. And then that night, which was the longest and darkest I ever knew, we took turn rocking and singing our little baby sister just as we had seen mother do. Here he stopped a moment, and Raymond, who was rather impatient, said, Don't stop, go on. The old man wiped his eyes and said, Heavens and earth, don't hurry a fellow so. Can't you let him wait till the big bumps get out of his throat? Or would you have me bellering here like a calf? Take your time, Mr. Middleton, said Mr. Stafford, who was as much affected as his brother at the remembrance of that sad night when he first felt what it was to be motherless. After an instant, Mr. Middleton continued. Directly that sister got big enough, she was married and started to go to England, but the vessel went to smash and the crew went to the bottom. Poor gal, she always hated salt, but she's used to it by this time, I reckon. And then there was Pap next, but he was old and gray-headed and sick-hearted like, and he wanted to go, but it made it just as bad for me then there was Bill. Here Mr. Stafford moved his chair so as to hide his face from the speaker, who continued, I did think I might have one left, but twasn't to be. He went too, and Josh was left alone. Mr. Middleton cleared his throat a little, refilled his cob pipe, and proceeded. 
the lord gin me two gals and then he sent me as noble a boy as ever was i don't care where the other one comes from he was mine but i loved him all the same you mr miller knew him but you don't know but you don't know nor begin to know how old josh loved him and what a tremendous wrench it gin my old heart when i come home and found he was dead but lord hain't he got a fine gravestone though you go to the cemetery at frankfort and you'll see it right alongside of lieutenant carrington's whose widows are flirting with everybody in creation anyway and frankfort startin now i've told you of all that's dead continued he striking the ashes out of his pipe and wiping it on his baggy trousers but i ain't told you yet what troubles me more than all there's something that haunts old josh and makes his heart stand still with mortal fear thar's sunshine dearer to her old pap than his own life you've all seen her and i reckon she's made some of your hearts ache but something's come over her she seems delicate like and, and is fading away here two big tears that couldn't be mistaken rolled down mr middleton's cheeks as he added emphatically and by jesus if sunshine goes old josh will bust up and go too the winding up of uncle josh's story was so odd and unexpected that all the gentlemen mr stafford included laughed loudly tain't no matter boys said mr middleton and so you'll all think if you ever have a gal as sweet and lovin like as sunshine here mr stafford said your sister's name was fanny i believe yes twas who told you asked mr middleton no one i knew it myself answered mr stafford looking his brother earnestly in the face mr middleton seemed puzzled and after closely scrutinizing mr stafford's speeches he said confounded am i in a nightmare i thought for a minute but no it, it can't be neither for you've got two thunder and black eye hide to be bill before mr stafford replies to this remark we will take the reader to the kitchen where a group of negroes are assembled round old aunt katie and are listening with breathless interest to what she is saying aunt katie was so infirm that she kept her bed for the greater part of the time but on this day she was sitting up and from her low cabin window she caught a view of the visitors as they alighted from the carriage when mr stafford appeared she half started from her chair and said aloud who upon earth can that be and where have i seen him somewhere certain and then it occurred to her that she would go into the kitchen and inquire who that tall darkish-looking gentleman was accordingly she hobbled out to make the inquiry she was much disappointed when she heard the name no said she tain't nobody i ever knowed and yet how like he is to somebody i've seen not long after the old negress again muttered to herself go away now what makes me keep a thinkin so of marster william this morning pears like he keeps haunting me then rising she went to an old cupboard and took from it a cracked earthen teapot from this teapot she drew a piece of brown paper and opening it gazed fondly on the little lock of soft brown hair bless the boy said she i mind just how he looked when i cut this hair from his head and the very day his mother was buried poor master william continued she most likely he's gone to eternity before his time as she said this tears which were none the less sincere because she who wept them belonged to africa's sable race fell upon the once bright but now faded lock of hair 
which the faithful creature had for more than forty years preserved as a memento of him whom she had long since looked upon as dead, although she had never ceased to pray for him, and always ended her accustomed prayer, Now I lay me, with the petition that God would take care of Master William and bring him home again. Who shall say that the prayer was not answered? Going back to her seat, she took up her knitting, and was soon living over the past, when she was young and dwelt with the old folks at home. Suddenly there came from the house the sound of merry laughter. High above all the rest was a voice, whose clear ringing tones made Katie start up so quickly that, as she afterward described it, a sudden misery cotched her in the back and pulled her down quicker. There was something in the sound of that laugh which seemed to Katie like an echo of the past. But, thought she, I'm deaf like and maybe didn't hear straight. I'll go to the kitchen again and hawk. In a few minutes she was in the kitchen, and dropping down on the meal chest as the first seat handy, she said, Ho, oh, Judy, is you noticed the strange gentleman's laugh? I ain't noticed nothing, answered Judy, who chanced to be out of sorts because, as she said, the white folks had done et up every atom of egg. They didn't even leave her the yaller one. Well, something in his laugh carried me back to the old plantation in Carolina, and I believe between you and me, Judy, that Master William's here, said Katie. Master William? What on earth do you mean? asked Judy, forgetting the eggs in her surprise. At the mention of Master William, who was looked upon as a great man, but a dead one, the little negroes gathered around, and, and one of them, our old friend Bobaway, said, Oh, laddie, I hope tis Master William, for Master Josh will be so tickled that he won't care if we don't do nothing for a week and I needn't milk the little heifer another. Oh, good, good. You go long, you Bob, said Aunt Judy, seizing a lock of his wool between her thumb and finger. Let me get you not milking the heifer, and I'll crack you. Again there was the sound of laughter, and this time Judy dropped her dishcloth, while Katie sprang up, saying, "'Tis, I know tis. Anyway, I'll walk around there as if for a little errand, and can see for myself.' Accordingly, old Katie appeared around the corner of the house, just as Mr. Middleton had spoken to his brother of his color. The moment Mr. Stafford's eyes rested on his old nurse, he knew her. Twenty years had not changed her as much as it had him. Starting up, he exclaimed, "'Katie, dear old man, Katie!' while she uttered a wild, exultant cry of joy, and springing forward, threw her thin, shriveled arms around his neck, exclaiming, "'My darling boy, my sweet Master William!' I know twas you, I knowed your voice. You are alive, I have seen you, and now old Katie's ready to die. White as ashes grew the face of Uncle Joshua. The truth had flashed upon him, and almost rendered him powerless. Pale and motionless he sat, until William, freeing himself from Aunt Katie, came forward and said, Joshua, I am William, your brother. Don't you know me? Then the floodgates of Uncle Joshua's heart seemed unlocked, and the long, fervent embrace which followed between the rough old man and his newly found brother made more than one of the lookers turn away his face, lest his companion should detect the moisture in his eyes, which seriously threatened to assume the form of tears. When the first joy and surprise of this unexpected meeting was over, Mr. Joshua Middleton said, as if apologizing for his emotion, I am dumbly afeard, Bill, that I acted mighty baby-like, but hang me if I couldn't help it. Such a day as this I never expected to see, and yet I've lain awake o' nights thinking maybe you'd come back, but such ideas didn't last long, 
and I'd soon give you up as a gunner. That's just what I never did, said Aunt Katie, who still stood near. In the excitement of the moment, she had forgotten that she had long thought of Marster William as dead. She continued, A heap of prayers I said for him, and it's chiefly owing to them prayers, I reckon, that he's done fished up out of the sea. I've never been in the sea yet, Aunt Katie, said Mr. Middleton, desirous of removing from her mind the fancy that any special miracle had been wrought on his behalf. Where in fury have you been? And what's the reason you ain't writ these dozen years? Come on, give us a history of your carryings on, said Mr. Joshua Middleton. Not now, answered his brother. Let us wait till evening, and then you shall hear my adventures. Now let me pay you my respects to your wife. While he was introducing himself to Mrs. Middleton, Katie went back to the kitchen, whither the news had preceded her, causing Bob and his joy to turn several somersaults. In the last of these he was very unfortunate, for his heels in their descent chanced to hit and overturn a churn full of buttermilk. When Aunt Katie entered she found Bob bemoaning the backache which his mother had unsparingly given him. Aunt Judy herself, having cleared away the buttermilk by sweeping it out of doors, was waiting eagerly to know if Marster William had done axed after her. "'Why, no, Judy,' said Katie, somewhat elated because she had somewhat elated because she had been the first to recognize and welcome the stranger. "'Why, no, I can't say you did, and tain't natural like that he should sit much store by you as by me. Ain't I got twenty years the start on you, and didn't I nurse him, and arter his mother died, didn't I learn him all his manners?' Aunt Judy was on the point of crying, when who should walk in but Master William himself. "'I am told,' said he, "'that Judy is here, Judy that I used to play with. "'Law bless you, Master William!' exclaimed Judy, at the same time covering his hand with kisses and tears. "'It's Judy, I is. I knowed you hadn't done forgot me.' "'Oh, no, Judy,' said he. "'I have not forgotten you, but I did not know whether you were living or not, so I did not bring you presents. But I'll get you something in a few days. Meantime, take this,' said he, slipping a silver dollar into the hands of Aunt Katie and Aunt Judy each of whom showered upon him so many blessings and thanks that he was glad to leave the kitchen and return to his companions, who were talking to Uncle Joshua without getting any definite answer. His brother's sudden return had operated strangely upon him, and for a time he seemed to be in a kind of trance. He would draw up his chair closely to William, and after gazing intently at him for a time, would pass his large rough hand over his hair, muttering to himself, Yes, it is, Bill, and no mistake. But who'd have thought it? At last, rousing himself, he turned to his other guests and said, "'You mustn't think hard on me if I ain't as pert and talkin' like for a spell. Bill's comin' home as kind of oversought the old man, and I'm thinkin' of the past when we's little boys and lived at home on Pap's old plantation afore any of us was dead.' The young gentleman readily excused the old man's silence, and when slanting beams of the setting sun betokened the approach of night, they all, with the exception of Ashton, began to speak of returning home. Mr. Middleton urged them to stay, saying, "'What's the use of going? Nancy's got beds enough, I reckon, and will be right glad of a chance to show her new calico kivalids. Besides, we are going to have some broad hand in the morning, so stay.' But as the next day was the Sabbath, the gentlemen declined the invitation. In bidding the host good-bye, they were soon on their way homeward, each declaring that he had seldom spent a pleasanter day. As they can undoubtedly find their way to Frankfort without our assistance, we will remain at Uncle Joshua's house together with Mr. William Middleton and Ashton. The latter felt as if he had suddenly found an old friend, 
and as nothing of importance required his presence at home, he decided to remain where he was until Monday. That evening, after everything was put to rights, and Mr. Middleton had yelled out his usual amount of orders, he returned to the porch, where his brother and Ashton were still seated. Lighting his old cob pipe, he said, "'Come, Bill, Nancy'll fetch out her rockin' chair and knittin' work, and we'll hear the story of your doings in that heathenish land. But be kind of short, for it appears like I'd lived a year to-day, and I feel mighty like going to sleep.' After a moment's silence, Mr. Middleton commenced. I shall not attempt to justify myself for running away as I did, and yet I cannot say that I have ever seriously regretted visiting those countries, which I probably shall never look on again. I think I wrote to you, Joshua, that I took passage on the ship Santiago, which was bound for the East Indies. Never shall I forget the feeling of loneliness which crept over me on the night when I first entered the city of Calcutta, and felt that I was indeed alone in a foreign land, and that more than an ocean's breath rolled between me and my childhood's home but it was worse than useless to dwell upon the past. I had my fortune to make, and I began to look about for some employment. At last I chanced to fall in with an intelligent Spaniard, Signor de Castello. He was a wealthy merchant, and for several years had resided in Calcutta. As he spoke the English language fluently, I found no trouble in making his acquaintance. He seemed pleased with me, and offered me the situation of clerk in his counting-room. I accepted his offer, and also became an inmate of his dwelling which was adorned with every conceivable luxury. His family consisted of himself and his daughter, Inez. At the mention of Inez, Ashton half started from his chair, but immediately reseating himself, listened while Mr. Middleton proceeded. I will not attempt to describe Inez, for I am too old now to even feel young again, by picturing to your imagination the beauty of that fair Spaniard. I will only say that I never saw one whose style of beauty would begin to compare with hers, until I beheld my niece Julia. "'Lord knows I hope she wouldn't like Tempest,' said Uncle Joshua, at the same time relieving his mouth of its overflowing contents. "'I do not know whether she were or not,' answered Mr. Middleton. "'I only know that Inez seemed too beautiful, too gentle, for one to suspect that treachery lurked beneath the soft glance of her dark eyes. I do not know why it was.' But Costello, from the first, seemed to entertain for me a strong friendship, and at last I fully believe the affection he felt for me was second only to what he felt for his daughter. But he could not remain with us, and in eighteen months after I first knew him, he took one of the fevers common to that sultry climate, and in the course of a few days he was dead. I wrote to you of his death, but I did not tell you that he had left a will, in which all his immense wealth was equally divided between myself and Inez. He did not express his desire that we should marry, but I understood it so, and thenceforth looked upon Inez as belonging exclusively to myself. "'You didn't marry her, though, I take it,' said Joshua, making a thrust at an enormous mosquito, which had unceremoniously alighted on his brawny foot. "'No,' answered William, "'I did not marry her, but t'was not my fault. She played me false. Six months after her father's death we were to be married. The evening previous to our wedding arrived.' I was perfectly happy, but Inez seemed low-spirited, and when I inquired the cause she answered, Nothing except a little nervous excitement. I readily believed her, but when the morning came the cause of her low spirits was explained. The bird had flown with a young Englishman, Sir Arthur Effingham, who had been a frequent guest at my house. That was one of Tempest's capers to a dot, said Uncle Joshua. But go on, Bill, and tell us whether the disappointment killed you or not. So William proceeded. Instead of my bride, I found a note from Inez, 
in which she asked pardon for what she had done, saying she had long loved Sir Arthur, but did not dare tell me so. They were going to England, whither she wished me to send a part of her portion, as her husband was not wealthy. I could understand Inez's character perfectly, and could readily see that she preferred a titled but poor Englishman to a wealthy but plain American, so I gave her up quietly. And was mighty glad to get shut of her so, interrupted Joshua. From that time, continued William, I gave up all thoughts of marriage, and devoted myself to increasing my wealth, and spending it for my own comfort and the good of others. Twelve years ago I chanced to go on board the Delphine, and there I found Ashton. Look at him, for gracious sake, said Uncle Joshua, pointing toward Ashton. Why, man, you are white as one of Judy's biscuits. What ails you? Nothing, answered Ashton, who was really much affected by Mr. Middleton's narrative, but he said, I am only thinking of the long, weary days I passed in the Delphine before Mr. Middleton kindly cared for me. This seemed quite natural, and Mr. Middleton continued. Ashton was wasted to a mere skeleton by ship fever, and my heart yearned toward him. Perhaps I felt a stronger sympathy for him when I learned he was an American. He, like myself, had run away. The vessel in which he had embarked had been wrecked, and he, with two others, was saved in a small boat. For days they floated above the broad expanse of waters, until at length Delphine picked them up, and brought them to India. I had Ashton removed to my house, but as soon as he recovered, he took French leave of me. From that time I lived alone. I wrote you frequently, but got no answer. My letters must have been lost. But then I concluded you were dead. At last I began to have such an ardent desire to tread on my native soil once more, that I disposed of my property and set out for home. So here I am, and have told you my history. What do you think of it? There was no answer save the sound of heavy breathing. Uncle Joshua had probably gone to sleep all over. The cessation of his brother's voice awoke him, and rubbing his eyes he said, Yes, yes, Ashton has the ship fever. I hope he can't give it now, for I'm mortal feared on it. Ashton assured him that there was no danger, and then, turning to William, said, Have you ever heard from Inez? Yes, said Mr. Middleton. About a year after her marriage I heard of the birth of a daughter, whom she called Inez Middleton. I have heard of them once or twice since, but not recently. After a moment's silence Ashton, with some hesitation, said, If I mistake not, I know Inez Effingham well. You know Inez? My Inez? Where? How? Tell me all, said Mr. Middleton, grasping Ashton's hand as if a new link suddenly added to the chain of friendship which already bound them together. You probably remember, said Ashton, that when I left you so suddenly there was an American vessel in port. I was anxious to return home, but I fancied you would oppose it, so I left without a word and went on board the ship. During the voyage I found that one of the crew was from my native town. I eagerly inquired after my parents and my little sister Nellie, whom you so often heard me mention. Judge of my feelings when told that they were all dead. In the agony of the moment I attempted to throw myself overboard, but was prevented. From that time all desire to return was gone, and when at last we stopped at one of the ports in England, I left the vessel to try my fortune in the mother country. But Inez, said Mr. Middleton, what of Inez? I will tell you answered Ashton. After remaining in England some years, I became acquainted with her father, Sir Arthur Effingham, who lived forty miles from London. He invited me to his house, and there I first saw Inez and her mother. To know Inez was to love her, but I could not hope to win the haughty Englishman's daughter, 
and besides she was so young that I did not believe I had made any impression upon her. But, encouraged by Lady Effingham, I at length ventured to ask Inez of her father. I did not wish to marry her then, as she was only fourteen, but her father spurned me with contempt, and bade me never again to enter his house. I obeyed, but tried many times to procure an interview with Inez. I succeeded, and told her I was about to leave England for America, but should never forget her. I would not suffer her to bind herself to me by any promise, but expressed my belief that at some future time she would be mine. It is three years since we parted. I immediately came to America, but I could not bear to return to my old home, and see it occupied by others, so I wandered this way, and at last settled in Frankfurt as a merchant. Here he stopped, and Mr. Middleton said, You have not told me of the mother. Does she still live? Ashton answered, She was living when I left England, but Inez has since written me of her death. That will do, Ashton, that will do. I do not wish to hear any more now, said Mr. William. While Mr. Middleton and Ashton were relating their adventures, Aunt Katie was busily engaged in superintending the arrangement of Master William's sleeping room. Mrs. Middleton had bidden Judy to see that everything was put in order, but Aunt Katie seemed to think nothing could be done right unless she had oversight of it. So she was walking back and forth, consulting with Judy a little, and ordering her a good deal. "'Now, Judy,' she said, "'hain't you no more ideas of elegance "'than to push the bedstead smack up against the clarbuds. "'Just pull it out a foot or two as old Miss used to do.' "'Judy complied with her request, and she continued, "'Lordy sakes, don't Miss Nancy know better "'than to put Master William to sleep in such call sheets?' "'At the same time casting a rueful glance at the linens "'which Judy had put on the bed. "'You sit down, Judy,' said Aunt Katie, "'and I'll tend to the bed myself.' So saying, she hobbled off to her cabinet, and opening her old red chest, drew from it a pair of half-worn but very fine linen sheets. These she shook most lustily in order to free them from the rose-leaves, lavender sprigs, and tobacco, which she had placed between their folds. With the former she thought to perfume them, while the latter was put there for the purpose of keeping out moths. The old creature had heard that tobacco was good to keep moths from woolens, and she knew of no reason why it would not answer every purpose for linen. Thar, said she, on returning to the house, these begins to look a little like Master William. They was gin to me by old master just before he died. They along to old miss, and if any one on us could read, I reckon we should find her name on us somewhere, Witten Brody. When the bed and room were adjusted to her satisfaction, she went down to the kitchen and took a seat there. Here Aunt Judy found her about ten o'clock that night. What on earth you sittin' here for? said she oh i's only waitin till master william gets a little used to his room afore i ax him how he likes it and does he want anything accordingly not long after aunt katie stole upstairs and opening the door called out ho oh, master william does you want anything and is you got enough kiver but master william's senses were too soundly locked in sleep to heed the faithful creature and after standing a moment she said to herself i'm mighty feared he'll catch a cold so back she went to her cabin, and from the same red chest took a many-colored patchwork quilt. This she carried to the house and spread carefully over Mr. Middleton, saying, He won't be none too comfortable, and in the morning he'll see it, and I'll tell him I done pieced and quilted it my own self. Consequence of this extra covering was that Mr. Middleton awoke in the night with the impression that he was being suffocated in the hot climate of Calcutta. He did not know that she, to whom he was indebted for his warm berth, was now sleeping quietly and dreaming 
how tickled master william would be when he knew she had lent him her spire sheets and bed quilt End of chapter 15 Recording by Robin in Norman, Oklahoma